Oh, man. Right, see, the hurricanes situations, I've the past two hurricanes, or two or three hurricanes now, I've always pre-evacuated to my parents' house with my family. You know, when you got kids, you want you try to think about, I mean, if it was just me, a bachelor, or me and my wife, we'd probably just ride it out of our house. But we have such a small little tiny house, and it's closer to the coast than, <laughs> Duplin County is one county over from the coast. We got Duplin, then Onslow. But Sampson County is one county further away from the coast. So I figured, you know, if we're a little bit further away, safer, number one. Number two, my parents have a bigger house. Uh, so it's more, I think it's more, and it's newer, so it's more secure. Uh, but number three, uh, if the power was to go out for an extended period of time, which it did last fall, we're closer to town and resources than we would be out in the country where, you know, my house is. So, so anyway, we go over there again. And this time, like I said, it was kind of a flop, but... I'm kind of glad, you know, but yeah, anytime, uh, I was thinking last time we had a hurricane, there was uh, flooding all over the place, roads were collapsed, and I would hate to be like stranded in the country, can't 10 miles from, I mean, 10 miles is not that far unless you can't get to town, right? And then you're thinking about having to, I mean, what if you, you only have two or three days worth of food and you're hard pressed, you know, so, you, well, I mean, I know it would be all right, but from a parent parental perspective, Trying to keep a three-year-old, you know, happy when you've only got Raymond, you know, that's not, it's, it's tough, you know. So uh, I'm glad we, I'm glad we kind of bugged out to my parents' house, even though there wasn't too much going on. In fact, my parents have a pool. Day after the hurricane, we're in the pool swimming and just cleaning up the pool area and stuff, and like nothing ever happened. So, yeah. uh, um, anybody else have any issues from Hurricane Dorian? No, I will mention, and I'll send this out in an email tomorrow. It'll probably, I probably won't even put the assignment up till tomorrow, but um, we do have makeup work to do anytime we miss a, a class. And that work is usually, I try, to, try not to make it too difficult. It's just usually I'll have a video that you watch on YouTube and write some a response or so that, that you can uh, kind of accompany the video. And the video is usually a, a timely topic, something that's related to business or management. Uh, that is, uh, and Kevin can tell you the videos we've watched in my previous classes have been interesting. I think you know, yeah, it's just like wow, you know. And some of the stuff I show, um, just to give you some examples, we've watched Too Big to Fail, which is a documentary, a docudrama on the 2008 collapse. Doesn't sound interesting, but when you see the stress that went on behind the scenes of how close our economy was to collapsing, uh, that's really stressful. We've watched The Founder about the McDonald's Corporation and how that started. Um, what I want to show is the Tucker movie on the cars. That's a good one. I hadn't shown that yet. Um, we've watched, seems like there was a couple more documentaries. Um, we watched one about the opioid crisis. Um, the Billionaire Guru. Oh, um, yeah, we watched one of Theranos, which was um, called The Inventor. I actually, I watched one, another one this weekend called The Fire, Fire Festival. Have you seen this one? Oh, if you haven't seen The Fire Festival, it's about a fraud that happened where this guy was a venture capitalist, or he... He was an entrepreneur that tapped into venture capital money, and he raised millions of dollars to basically create an app to book talent big time, like you could book Ja Rule or a big-name big, big name celebrity to come to your party. And in order to promote the app, he decided to throw a festival on, on a <laughs> bohemian island. And while he's throwing this festival and trying to throw the festival, he's raising tens of millions of dollars to do it, and it's just a money pit because they have no infrastructure in place 
They're having to dump millions of dollars in to bring food in. He bought $2 million worth of liquor, for example, and the duty, the tax on that was 45%, so he had to pay $900,000 in just taxes to bring the alcohol to the island, stuff like, stuff like that. And it's um, just it's one nightmare after another. And he ended up getting, I don't want to spoil it, but he ended up getting in trouble. I mean, it was a, a fraud and legal issues that became of that. Really interesting, but... Um, you, we saw that, and then you see, like, Theranos, who was um, Elizabeth... God, what was her last name? It's going to come, come to me after the fact. Anyway, she started a company that was uh, to basically test blood, blood test company with just using a, a small amount versus intravenous, you know, in, uh, what do you call it? There's an actual term for it, where you actually have to pull massive amounts of blood out of your vein. Instead of doing that, they were going to do a finger prick to test all these different illnesses that you could have or levels, and there was a fraud. Basically, she said, I'm going to raise a lot of money. And she raised like $900 million. It was like a, was a valuation of a couple billion dollars worth of the company. And the whole thing collapsed to zero, nothing. And she's continually right now going through legal proceedings because of that. And so ethics and integrity, are these, these are topics that we talk about in this class. And every once in a while, I'll have something else that will come out like you know, one of these documentaries or something to show you that these things, types of things happen every day. And when I was growing up, it was Enron and WorldCom. Do you remember these companies, Scott? Yeah, Enron was an energy conglomerate, and they were having fictitious numbers on their documents, uh, and it was just absolutely disgusting what they were doing. And they, were, they actually had rolling blackouts in California, um, basically would cut the power, so the power prices would go up and they would make more money to turn the power back on. But during, when the power goes out, what happens to people? Does anybody know, like, when the power goes out, what happens? Everybody freaks out. Mm-hmm. Everybody freaks out. Crime occurs. People die because they overheat or they can't get access to, like, they need law enforcement, they can't get them. And so when the power goes out, people die. And so there was just all kinds of problems that, that happened. Another one we watched was... Um, Oh man, uh, the one about the drug company. You remember that one was. Um, you know what I'm talking about, though. It was the the, the drug shorts where they invested in this uh, this drug company and they were hoping for it to collapse so they could make more money on the shorts position. It was on this. Uh, there's this Netflix series called Dirty Money. Um, I, I know several of you probably have Netflix. If you haven't watched any of these, Dirty Money is a good one. It goes into kind of the dark side of business, and you see another one's American Greed on CNBC. And I like to watch these, and I like to show these because you can see what not to do. And, it's like, and then on hindsight, it's so obvious that, yeah, you shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. I watched an American Greed recently where these two doctors, these are medical doctors, they, were, they set up a shop, and this has been some, you know, within the past decade, they set up a shop, and they were prescribing people opioids just in mass. I mean, you go in, you get seen for five or ten minutes, you get an opioid prescription, and people were dying from opioid addiction, and people were dying when they got cut off and they had to turn to heroin. But these doctors were, uh, they actually invested $800,000 of their own money into a drug company, and then they picked a drug from that company that they could prescribe to replace their opioids, and they started prescribing that drug, which was a fentanyl-based drug, and you've all heard that name, fentanyl, I'm sure, in the news, how deadly that is. People were, uh, I mean, just, I mean, there's one mom up there was talking, she'd never had any drugs or alcohol in her life, and she's taking this prescription, and she became a drug addict because of that, you know, because it's so addictive. 
And so these doctors, um, at one point, they were prescribing somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 percent of all the prescriptions for that one particular drug in the United States. And they were reaping the benefits, you know, I mean, I mean millions of dollars of uh, revenues and stuff. So it's really just disgusting how some of this stuff comes together. And like I said, the reason I bring this stuff up is because we, we need to learn what not to do. We need to look at the bad behavior of others and say, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this type of behavior. We shouldn't be involved in this type of thing. And so leading into chapter four, I know we got into chapter three, and I'm, for the sake of time, I'm just going to kind of merge in chapter four. If you do need some extension on chapter three, drop me an email, and we'll talk about that uh, via email. Just I want to address that on individual cases, depending on, you know, because of the hurricane. But in any case, chapter four talks about external and internal organizational environments and corporate culture. And so just looking at that headline or that header, what do you think this chapter is about, internal and external environment? What, is that, what does that deal with? The inside and outside of a business. The inside and outside of a business, yeah. What goes on internally that affects it? What goes on outside that affects it? What's culture? What's corporate culture? Like the whole business industry. The whole business industry, okay. Dealing with companies. Dealing with companies, all right. Um, their beliefs, yeah, that's a better the belief is a is a better like way to describe it, and so culture is a shared belief system or a shared value system, and so when you say like American culture, United States, you know what what's kind of an American thing, or you know you have Southern culture, you have Northern culture, you have uh, Midwest and then Western culture. What's Southern culture and what's your, like? What is what's up we do in the South? We like our pig pickings, right? Sweet tea. Yeah, football games, right? What's that? Barbecue with vinegar. Barbecue with vinegar, yeah, yeah. So that's like, yeah, that's the southern thing. Like, um, trying to think, uh, sitting on the porch in the summer, drinking sweet tea, that kind of, that's a, that kind of stuff, you know, hanging out. Uh, football games, I think that's more of a national culture thing, though, you know. Um, so I know, Lewis, you're from originally, are you from somewhere else? Are your families from, where are you from originally? Are your family. So what would be a culture there? Well, but you like, yeah, eat, drink, yeah. What about, uh, but you like so- soccer, but yeah, you call yeah. it, you yeah. like to call it, yeah, that's where I was going. What's that? Yeah, right, so soccer, yeah, 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 but that's a part of Mexican culture, but it's a part of global. Yeah, boxing, okay, I got you, yeah. So culture is this shared belief or values, what we, what we uh, invest in, and Corporate culture does shift over time because we have different people come in. You've probably hung around uh, a bunch of older people that were twice your age and they had a different way of seeing the world, right? Versus hanging around people your age or people that are younger. It's so weird because I'm at a weird place in my life right now. I'll be 40 next month and I hang around a bunch of people that are older than me and younger than me. And I see the very weird divide between the two, you know? Like there's just... The way that people view the world is so different. There's a big, big difference in that difference in that culture, um, and so these are some of the outcomes for Chapter Four: define the external environment of organizations, identify contemporary external forces pressuring organizations. These are the things that the big uh, contributors to uh, organizational pressure or organizational forces. Identify different types of organizational structures and their strengths and weaknesses. Explain how organizations organize to meet external market threats and opportunities, identify the fit between organizational cultures and the external environments, and then identify environmental trends, demands, 
and opportunities facing organizations. So a lot to unpack, but we're going to kind of take our time. We've got some couple of days to go over this. And so with the first piece, talking about the external environments, we'll spend a little time kind of going through this graphic. This kind of identifies the five big macro forces of the external environment. And just kind of going piece by piece, the economic forces, globalization, competitors and supply chains, currency exchange rates, employment and wage rates, lending policies of financial institutions. So let's talk about those economic forces kind of piece by piece. Because now more than ever at any point in history of the world, business has become more complex. You know, and just trying to figure out ways to simplify business functions is a big business. If you can figure out how to make business simpler for people in business, that's a viable and great business to be in right now because business has become extremely complicated. Um, there was a, I told you in the past, I like to watch Shark Tank. There was a guy who developed a business just to intercept deliveries for people because they didn't want deliveries to be left on their front porch because of the risk of loss or theft. So this is what, what this business was, is that you could set up kind of like a P.O. box at a third-party company, and that company will accept your packages on your behalf and then deliver them in a after-hours time for you. That's like So instead of getting pizza delivery at 8.30 at night, you're getting your, your Amazon packages or whatever at 8.30 at night because that's when you're home and that's when you can accept them, and you don't want to leave it, like I said, on your front porch or somewhere exposed. Uh, you know, it may or may not be a problem around here, but in some places where it's densely populated, there's a lot of houses in a small area, people will ride down the road and just stop at door to door looking for opportunities to take things. Um, I had a friend that had some stuff robbed out of her car recently. And so there are, uh, the theft does occur everywhere. It just, you know, sometimes it seems to happen in more densely populated areas. But uh, trying to solve those problems is a, a viable and important business to be in. So globalization, um, I read a book many years ago now called uh, The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman, and it talked about globalization. And with globalization, there's a lot of unintended consequences uh, because of that. Or, or actually, nobody could have identified how these macro decisions or macro choices that we make as countries could have uh, affected so many. Um, as an example, we've outsourced a lot of our industry to other countries because they can produce it because of wages and employment, right? So if we can pay somebody a quarter or a tenth of what we're, char we're being paid American labor, yeah, we can do it somewhere else a lot cheaper and, and get a uh, lot more profit out of that. But the unintended consequence of that is that there's people that we're not paying in this country who are not adding to the tax base who are struggling to find comparable employment. And so lots of unintended consequences. It's not just those individuals who are not getting paid, it's all the people who those people use their income to pay other people. So those are rents not getting paid now, those are mortgages or car payments or grocery store visits or other discretionary spending, going out to eat and things like that. And so uh, powerful economic forces at play. Competitors and supply chains, and it goes hand-in-hand hand with globalization. Um, when we've got uh, globalization uh, and we've got competitors from around the globe, we're at an advantage in that we have a ton of organizations and companies in the United States that we export to other countries. But we do have some com companies that come over here and set up shop in our neighborhood. 
And so right now, I don't think we're feeling the full force of that because uh, a lot of our companies that we see traditionally around here are American-based companies. But we could at some point in the future see, you know, every second or third company we run into be a foreign-owned or uh, foreign-based company. So um, currency exchange rates, that's another consideration. Uh, the health of one company or the health of one country has an effect on another country's health. Just like the human body, right? If your liver fails, that's not going to go well for your heart, kidneys, and lungs, right? I mean, you kind of need that liver in place. And so same thing if one country's currency collapses, it affects not only the surrounding companies, but it does have ripples around the global economy because uh, that country contributes to the, the entire uh, economy of the world, even if it's just in a small way. If you look at the global currency chart and seeing, you know, the top 20 currencies, the top 20 really dominate. You know, the United States is the global reserve cur uh, currency. You've got other countries like Great Britain. You've got uh, France. You've got Canada. You've got um, Russia, places like that. But there's a lot of countries that have very little representation in the global currency uh, markets but they still matter. They're still a part of the world's anatomy. And so that is a factor that, that, that is a part of the issue. And then employment wage, uh, wage rates, something uh, I've already touched on a moment ago, but um, yeah, you want to be able to have uh, people that are employable, that, they, that you can afford to pay a good rate. And you know, the thing is, uh, different countries are at different points in their uh, economy. You know, some, sometimes like, here we might be paying people what they consider, you know, minimum wage might be seven fifty, uh, but in other countries that minimum wage might be two dollars, and so uh, you know you have to look at where can you find a pool of resources, human capital, that you can pay them a rate where you can save money but also get the same or better results. Companies are constantly doing that, so that's economic forces. The next force are those technological forces, informa information technology, and the internet new production forces and how technology is sold and serviced. And so every company feels this. Every company feels the pressure of uh, technological forces. And if you ignore it, other companies are going to step in and take advantage of technological forces. The great thing about technology is it allows us to leverage our time. You know, I teach, I'm teaching eight classes this semester. It would be really difficult for me to sit down and lecture for eight individual classes. But because of technology, I'm doing a couple different sections of the same course. As an example, this very course I'm starting again next week in an online environment, and I can take these lectures that I'm recording, upload them or put them in that classroom, and now because of technology, I've leveraged my ability to offer the lecture and the material to a second class all through leveraging technology. And so companies use technology as a lever in order to make them uh, better at what they do, allow them to, to uh, make more ends meet, uh, allow them to be more functional and create more outputs. And so information technology and the internets, yeah, most any business today, any business has some type of internet representation. Even if you're just a simple, you know, if you've got a lawn care business, you probably have a Facebook page, right? Because you got to get your message out. You know, if you're a hairstylist, you probably have a Facebook page. You want to like, or an Instagram or something, so you can let people know, hey, this is what I do, come see me. Um, there's a ton of opportunity now with the internet in order to get your information out to others and to use tools on the internet to make your business better. The 
problem we have is that there's just so much, right? You can drown in a sea of everybody else trying to do the same thing. So you've got to figure out ways to differentiate yourself, and we see that time and time again on the Internet. So new production forces. <clears throat> um, there's a saying that I've heard for a while now that the jobs that exist today, the top ten jobs of tomorrow, ten years from now, don't even exist today. Have you heard this before? Yeah, it's because the technology cycle is changing so fast. Uh, at some point, we are going to cross the threshold of, of uh, artificial intelligence. And once we cross that line and we have computers that can think and create for themselves, it'll really be a game changer for humanity. And, and we won't have to figure out how to do this because the machine can say, oh, well, you may have figured this out, but I can tell you how to do it 100 times better, you know, in a 100 times shorter time period. And so once we get to that point, it will dramatically change the landscape of how we create and produce. There's a guy named Ray Kurzweil. He's a um, futurist, and he is an artificial intelligence researcher. Ray Kurzweil's written many books. Uh, I've read a couple of them. One of them was about um, the soul of a machine, and another one's called How to Create a Mind. And he said that once AI is created, that's the last invention humanity ever needs to make. Think about that for a second. Once we create AI, we don't need to create anything else because the AI can tell us how to do anything we could ever create, how to do it better. As far as like functional production stuff, like if we want to invent a better airplane, AI will tell you how to make it better than when you could ever think of. So kind of scary, kind of scary. Yeah, what do you think, man? Yeah, uh, yeah, take over the world, yeah. There's a lot of people like in the doomsday like sphere that think, you know, AI could be, there could be a doomsday scenario with that. So yeah, it is scary, but you know, every invention is scary, you know, when it first comes out, you know, like, I mean, I guess not every invention, but new technology in and of itself is scary because it means letting go of the past and accepting something new. So, I mean, cell phones at one point were thought to be evil. It was like, you know, you don't need that. We've got our party line, right, with the, the landline. And so, yeah, or the TV, you know, people thought the TV was evil, you know, they thought that's, this is a, what did they call it, you know, poison junk. Yeah, it's a zombie box. It poisons young people's minds, you know, so. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, too much of anything is not good, so. So sociocultural forces, sociocultural forces, sorry. Uh, so these are demographic trends, lifestyle changes, availability skills, attitude towards work, gender issues, willingness to move, and ethics. So these trends, these do change over time, both domestically and internationally, um, and they do, they do change internally. We're not talking about the internal yet. But um, I'll give you an example of a demographic shift in my lifetime. When I was a kid, I started kindergarten in 1985, I believe. And in my kinder kindergarten classroom, I don't think there was hardly any Hispanic people or Latino people, right? Just 1985. But fast forward to 1998 when I graduated high school, I had a few, maybe... Out of 155 people in my graduating class, I probably had maybe 10 Hispanic Latino uh, folks in my classroom. But now, when I go to my kids' school, this is you know tw almost 2020, half the class is Hispanic Latino. And so that's a huge demographic shift from 1985 to 2020. In about a 40-year period, we, we're seeing the kids in the classrooms locally uh, double, you know, or actually not double, but half of the population. And so what do you think that means for companies locally? Right, yeah. Bilma's not here today, but Bilma 
is a translator, and she works for an insurance company to translate for you know because we have such a large population of people that that uh, English is not the first language. Um, also, like you want to look for services that you can provide to that community that you know say hey you know maybe like I don't know what, what kind of services do you guys think that this community would need? I'll give you an example for me while you're thinking about it. I was at Walmart. Uh, I was assistant manager. This was 2005. And my first store was Whiteville. And in Whiteville, they didn't have as big a Hispanic and Latino population. But when I moved back home to Clinton, they had a large Hispanic Latino population. And um, when I went to that store, they had big sections of the store dedicated to products that were Hispanic Latino products like Maseca flour, things like that, that this, this uh, group of folks liked. And because of that, you know, they were able to capitalize because they knew that's where it's at. There's a place in that same town that just opened within the past few years. It's called Tropico. It's an entire grocery store. Yeah. Have you ever been there? Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Uh, in Clinton? Yeah. It's nice, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, whenever, and probably know, whenever you go up north, go to Maryland or go to Virginia. Right. There's this place, I think it's like an Asian place called Right. Rumble. Okay. Like, like you find, <laughs> you find anything in that country. Right. Yeah. Well, so I went in Tropico about a month or two ago for the first time. Um, just never, just never, I mean, I, for me, I, I don't really go into new stores that often, but I wanted to check it out. And I walked around in there, and it was really nice. And it was a ton of products that you just don't see in, like, a Walmart, for example, or a food line. And so, and, but guess what the crazy thing was, though? Almost everybody in there was Hispanic Latino. There was no white or black people in there or, or Native American, you know, or Asian. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, but there was, like, I was the only white guy in there, no kidding. And I was like... Yeah, but it was cool, but it was just, it was, <laughs> I, yeah, I love you guys too, yeah, yeah, but like, uh, but it was just, uh, you know, like, what I'm saying is like, that company, Tropico, they identified a need that was not yeah. met in Walmart and Food Line and Piggly Wiggly or Carly C's, and they said, because of this unmet need, we're going to fill that gap, and it was a busy, vibrant, there was, you know, probably 10 registers at the front, and many of them were open, uh, and so there was a vibrant, unmet need, and so... That is when you see these demographic shifts happening, that's when you step in and say, hey, there's an unmet need here. What can I do to fill that gap? Um, there's this thing I probably mentioned in another class, might have mentioned it here, called sociological imagination, where you go and say, I see a country that's on the path of the United States where they're industrialized, they're about to get into, you may be trying to get away from industrialization and getting more to the white collar service-based um, uh, setup. What kind of services do these folks need that, you know, maybe folks need in the United States at that time frame? And so you go to that country and set up shop and maybe you're providing things like cell phones or information technology or home security uh, services or uh, insurance, you know, I mean, things like that. I mean, like banking, for example, and we take it for granted that we all have debit cards, right? Most everyone has a debit card or credit cards. A lot of the world is unbanked. They just don't have access to banking services. So what if you said, I'm going to start a bank, I'm going to go to another country and set up shop and make it really easy for people just to get a debit card. Uh, and, you know, we don't do loans yet. We just do offer debit services to make that a convenient thing for people to do. And so that is a bold frontier where it's just waiting to be tapped and just nobody's done it yet. So, all right. So lifestyle changes. If you, I'll, I'll bring this up because I, I'm personally overweight, but like, I saw a video over the weekend this guy was talking about the sociocultural change in America where he looked at a, a picture from like the 70s 
and it was a crowd shot, and everybody was not overweight in the picture. But if you look at a picture today, a lot of people in America are overweight, and that's not a thing to say about being ugly. It's just a commentary on our culture that we need to work on from a health perspective. You know, I know I personally need to lose some weight, but lifestyle changes, because people are overweight, they're paying more for life insurance. Uh, life expectancy has gone down. Uh, in fact, for the first time probably in a generation, life expectancy has gone down. Um, a big contributor besides weight, because weight is correlated with heart disease, cancer, and diabetes, big contributor to life expectancy, though, is guess what? The opioid crisis, which is so huge. It's even bigger than even I can wrap my mind around because I've studied it for a while now, and the more I study it, the more I realize it's, it's way bigger than I thought it was. I mean, but because of the opioid crisis alone, uh, it's dropped the life expectancy because so many young people are dying because of it. Um, availability, availability skills, um, that's a factor in sociocultural. Attitudes towards work, there's, and I'm, I don't know if this is true or not, I'm asking. There's a perception out there, either it's true or false, I don't know, that millennial generation or younger doesn't really like to work or doesn't want to work. Is it true? Yep. Yeah. What do you, I mean, is, I mean I, no judgment, I don't know. I mean, you, is it true? Yeah. Well, for me, I get it. I would encourage everybody to find work they like doing, though. Like, even if it's not the pay you think you want. When I first got out of college, my goal was to make six figures. You know, I thought, I'm going to go make a lot of money. And then I realized the cost of doing that is greater than what I want to do, you know, right now. Like, I figured, you know, I was in retail, and I figured I could be a store manager and make six figures. But it was going to take probably 20 years, and there's no guarantee that you're going to make store manager and make that kind of salary. And the, the path to get there was so painful of having to work 50, 60-hour work weeks, a lot of overnights, long stints of overnight work, and the time away from my family and the health and happiness just wasn't worth it to me. So, uh, But I encourage you to find work you like doing, and I think that will change attitudes. I saw a survey within the past several years that said that 80% of the public that works doesn't like their job. Do you believe that? 80%? That's high. That means that four out of five people walk around discontent with a third of their life, you know. So if your home life is not good and you don't sleep good, then your life is pretty miserable, right? So we got to work on that. We got to do work that matters that you enjoy. Gender skills or gender issues, um, that's, that's always a conversation. And we're working on it in this country, but it still have ways to go. We, we still have some uh, gender issues in this country that we need to continue to work on and worldwide you know there's there's just because if we got it right now in the states which we don't but if we did there's still a lot of other world to cover to get that right um willingness to move and then ethics so willingness to move are you willing to go where the opportunities are a lot of people stay within 50 miles of where they're born their whole life um i grew up in sampson county which is about 30 minutes away or 30 miles so i live about 30 miles from my home but, yeah, I mean, and for me, the idea of getting up and moving to a different state, it's, it's, it's a little foreign right now, but I could see me moving older. You know, I could see me going somewhere where it's not as humid. You know, that's, I would love to go somewhere where it's kind of a crispy climate, you know, like Maine or something, maybe a little chilly. So just to ch just change the pace, man. But I might have a small home around here and then maybe something up there. So that's the goal. So, But ethics, the last one. So ethics... What do you think that means as far from a social or cultural standpoint? Like, do ethics change? Do societal ethics change? 
Yeah, they do. So, what do you what, what do you guys what do you mean by that? What do you think? I think you know, you definitely live in a society where everything's becoming more sensitive towards certain you know classes of people. So we have a sensitive society. Yeah, that's kind of a hard term. It is. It's, it's, it is. You know how you got certain people who have these have this type of preference and other people that have this type of preference. And right. You know, they don't want to offend one another. Right. Right. Yes, it's called uh, outrage culture is where we live in right now, where everything is like, I could say something that's very tolerant, and if it's, if it's very tolerant, but it's not as tolerant as somebody else, you know, it's like, you got to go that extra inch, you know, I'm like, what, you know, I mean, like, you could be very nice and charming and agreeable, but if you're just not that exact flavor that somebody's looking for, I'll say this when it comes to outrage culture and ethics, is that you're always going to have people that are discontent, no matter what. And I've learned as a teacher that you just can't please everyone. Like I'll have, I can do a good, good by my students, try to teach, try to lecture, uh, try to help my students, but I'm always going to have one that is just discontent, that's not going to be happy, that, that you didn't do enough for. And I'm like, you know, and from their perspective, it's me, but from my perspective, it's them. You know, that, you know I'm here to help, but the, the work as expectation is on the student. You know, you've got to do it. Uh, but also from, from ethics, like, we change how we define what's ethical or not, you know, over time. Like, used to be public hangings, right? Like, somebody broke the law, guess what? Let's go. We're having a hanging on Saturday, everybody. Let's get together. Sweet tea, hanging. But, you know, to, the idea of that today seems completely unethical and not good, right? So we've kind of evolved in our sensibility on that. Yeah, it used to be that walking down the street with a gun, and if you shot somebody with calls, they might uh, take your gun away until trial, and then you had a trial with a judge, and then if it was for calls that you killed this person, then you got your gun back and you went home. That was kind of the Old West, you know, mentality. Uh, but we've kind of evolved since then, too. You know, we don't, we don't act like that anymore. I hope not. Uh, and so um, the last few uh, natural disaster and human-induced problems uh, weather, extreme storms like hurricanes, tsunamis, pollution, health, food, stress. So these are uh, human-induced problems. Uh, the weather and human-induced, or natural, natural disasters, I guess, is not necessarily human-induced. So we just went through the storm. This is kind of a timely topic on this. Um, if you're a business that exists in the coastal plain, You've got to consider the fact, or in a hurricane zone too, you've got to consider the fact that you're going to face a hurricane at some point, you know, and what do you do? Um, if you're in a flood zone, what do you do? I mean, it's just, you have to consider this as, a, as part of the viability of starting a business. If you ever see a big chain like a McDonald's or an Outback or something, when they build a new location, one of the first things they do is build up a mound, right? They kind of put it up on a hill and they have it designed so. The parking lot is sloped, and if a big place like a Walmart or something will have a retention pond, and once they have a big flood, that water flows into that pond, and they, they design it that way so they can avoid that type of damage. But, yeah, these are things that you have to consider. What if a storm came through and shut you down for a month? Could you be a viable business to do that? So I told my dad during the hurricane, we need to come up with something that every household has got to have during a hurricane. I don't know what it is, but we got to come up with something, you know. Uh, so other things, uh, pollution, yeah, that's, that, that is, uh, something to be considered, you know, if, 
if you just depend on clean water to produce whatever you're producing, do you have access to that due to pollution issues? I mean, can you get what you need? Um, health, food, and stress, uh, human-induced problems. Yeah, um, if you have a group of individuals that work for you and you're paying insurance for them, every year those premiums are probably going to go up if you have an unhealthy population, if they're eating unhealthy foods, if they're constantly stressed. Uh, so you have to consider that as part of the natural disaster, human-induced external factors. And then we get to this last factor, government and political forces, legislation, international law, wars, local regulations, taxations, trade union activities. And so the first thing that came to mind when I was talking about this on the taxation piece was we just had a law passed that allowed for the corporate tax rate to drop. Uh, and keep in mind that some of these huge corporations are paying very little taxes. Amazon, General Electric, um, who was another big one? Uh, it's just left my mind, but companies like that, they pay very little if no taxes. And you're thinking, how do they do that? You know, they're making billions of dollars. Well, they use the system in order to get subsidies, and so they get monies from the government to offset their tax liability to the point where they have a neutral tax liability. So very much so, we as individuals in this room, every one of us pay more taxes than Amazon. So think of, wrap your head around that and thinking, how does that work? You know, why is that even legal? It is. But they, and, and in order to even like bolster these companies even more, yeah, Apple was the other company. Apple pays you know, very little, if, if any, taxes. So Apple has, by the way, $215 billion in cash in the bank. So you go to the bank, $215 billion. Yeah, it's because they've been able to bankroll and just keep, keep stacking profits, and they've been able to reduce their tax liability. So they just had a law pass. These companies were able to repatriate money from abroad. They bring funds back, and a lot of them bought back stock of their own company, which raised the price, which rewards shareholders. But, uh, you know, at the time when the stock market was at an all-time high, the idea that all these companies are just getting richer and richer just kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But um, other forces, the government legislation. So for the lobbyists, I'm not going to give you the exact stat because I don't rightly recall. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1 to 30 is the ratio. For every one person or lobbyist that's in Washington lobbying for public interests, there's 30 corporate interest lobbyists lobbying against that one. So let's say that Somebody is in Washington lobbying for clean water. I want clean water for my community. Well, there might be 30 lobbyists against that clean water person saying, oh, you, you know, we want to put our company here and we'll have a little bit of pollution. We might have some runoff, but we're going to increase the tax base and we're going to give you $100,000 to your reelection campaign and we want you to vote the way we want you to, to vote. You know, who cares, the public, you know, it's all good. And so that's just one example. But there's a bunch of things like that where lobbyists are paid millions of dollars to go lobby against public interest and they lobby for special and corporate interest. Keep in mind, I'm a capitalist. I, I mean, I love business. I think entrepreneurship is powerful, but I don't like crony capitalism. I don't like under the, under the table dealing. I don't like that kind of stuff. And so we need compassionate capitalism where people are doing things uh, transparently, fairly, and doing the right thing that's ethical. Uh, but there's a ton of cronyism, which is where you're buying politicians and getting them to do your bidding. And politicians play this game. They do. They, they say, well, you know, 
this person's contributing $100,000 or they're paying me $100,000 to go speak at this institution. You know, doctors do the same things, you know, and I'm not against doctors. I love doctors, but if a doctor gets paid $100,000 speaking fee, quote unquote, to go speak at a medical conference and the company that paid them that has a certain prescription, they want them to start writing. Come on, you do the math, guys. Be real, you know, so... I mean, yeah, I mean, am I, am, I, am I crazy? You know, this is what really goes on in the world. And, of course, the doctor's thinking, you know, this drug, you know, it's probably going to help them. It's not going to do any harm. Who am I to judge? $100,000 looks good to me. And guess what? They're going to pay me the same thing next year to do the same thing. And so, yeah, there's this, there's this yeah. This, that's what the opioid crisis is all about, right? Yeah. They just got fined almost half a billion dollars because of that, which is a drop in the bucket. To think that you could get fined like $574 million and then you laugh about it because that's a lot. In fact, check this out. True story. The day that the opioid company, I don't remember the, which one it was. I don't remember which one it was. No, it was $570 million, I believe. The day they got fined, the stock price went up. Do you know why? Because they were relieved it wasn't worse. They thought it was going to be billions of dollars. The fact it was only five hundred seventy million. Oh, what a relief! Stock price goes up. That is. And I'm not saying. I'm not saying this happened. And and I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but it would not surprise me that if somebody connected to that case talked to the judge and said, "Hey, these guys have given me a lot of money over the years, and they've done a lot of good." You know, you're a good guy. I've known you for a while. Why don't you kind of take it easy on these guys? And then they just, you know, they pay the fine. Yeah, right. Well, you can go look at it on YouTube. There's a famous uh, video where the presidents of the tobacco companies are up there in front of Congress testifying. I do not believe that tobacco causes cancer, right? And they're all swearing off that, you know, but they know, they know their internal studies showed that it was a problem. So, yeah, it's just corruption. All right, last little bit here. Um, regulations uh, can cause some interference in business. International laws can cause interferences or uh, these are external forces that have to be considered. And trade union activities. All these forces, just to recap this, are at play when it comes to the macro environment of business. Um, I'm going to talk about these uh, real quick. Like I've already kind of hit on these. We talk about globalization. This is the, uh, has made the external environment very com complex. All the, not only do you have to pay attention to what's going on in your backyard, but you have to pay attention to what's going on everywhere, in your industry worldwide. Um, we talk about technological forces, government and pol political forces, sociocultural and environmental forces, natural disaster and human-induced environmental problems. So several different things we've talked about. Um, when we come back on Wednesday, I'm going to pick up and talk about dimensions of environmental complexity and what makes it complex, what makes it stable, and we'll pick it up from there. Uh, if you guys need anything at all in the meantime, just drop me an email. I will be in communication today or tomorrow about uh, assignments and things like that. But if you need anything, drop me an email, guys. Appreciate you. Have a good day, bud.